All right, I've got some bad news tonight. Tonight, David has to die. We come to the end of David's life. There are other events that could be talked about. There's the uh, occasion when he returns to Jerusalem after his uh, ousting by Absalom, and, and he encounters a number of individuals who wronged him in the process, and he extends fabulous mercy to these individuals who, who, who took advantage of his family drama and of his, his uh, um, exodus out of Jerusalem, and yet he shows mercy to them. There's that occasion where he decides on his own to conduct a census of his people, and it brings some drastic consequences. It's a situation where God says, hey, you've done wrong. Here's three options. You get to choose which consequence you get. It's an amazing little story. But due to our, our time constraints, it's time for us to look at the lasting impact of David. You know, it's interesting in Scripture, when you deal with uh, kings especially, a lot of them have traumatic endings to their story. A lot of them are assassinated. Others of them uh, die in battle. Uh, some are removed from office by the Lord's power in some capacity. David has none of that. In fact, we have two passages that describe the end of David's life. The first appears in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, and this is all that is said. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, and the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. The other passage comes from 1 Chronicles chapter 29. In fact, it's the very end of the book of 1 Chronicles. It's verses 26 through 30, which says, Thus David, the son of Jesse, reigned over all Israel. The time that he reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. Then he died at a good age, full of days, riches and honor. And Solomon, his son, reigned in his place. Now the acts of King David from first to last are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer and the chronicles of Nathan the prophet and in the chronicles of Gad the seer with accounts of all his rule and his might and of the circumstances that came upon him and upon Israel and upon all the kingdoms of the countries. There's nothing dramatic about David's uh, end. There's nothing unique. The way Scripture describes it is it was his time. He had a peaceful ending, a peaceful transition to the next king, and life goes on. But this man after God's own heart is so prominent from this point forward that it's like his life never stopped. If you journey through Scripture, David gets brought up time and time again, long after he passes away. And so what I want us to focus upon tonight is David's legacy. Not so much an event in his life at this point, but what the lasting impact of his life was on other people. And I want to do it by looking at three basic things. First, I want to look at his example. Because when you reflect back on David and watch the story unfold after his death, you discover that David's example provided a standard from that point forward. One of the things that's so fascinating to me is that future kings... And in the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, after, after the kingdom gets split, the united kingdom that was under Saul 
David and Jonathan gets divided during the time of Jonathan's son, Rehoboam. And it gets split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. All the kings in the southern kingdom are descendants of David. Not so with the northern kingdom, because it got uh, split off under the leadership of a, uh, of a servant of Solomon's. But David's family reigns over the southern kingdom for the entirety of its existence. And so we have numerous royal entities related to David, and time and time again, they're going to get compared to him. His example is so revered that the text of Scripture is constantly appealing back to it. So I want to show you what I'm referring to by starting with his son, Solomon. So in Solomon, for example, let me skip to here. Solomon, David's son, will reign after him. And if you turn over to 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 3, one of the first things we read about Solomon compares him to David in a very positive light. 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 3 says, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. That simple statement tells us so much about David's son because David loved the Lord. Solomon has inherited that aspect of David's character, that, that aspect of David's life. And because Solomon loves the Lord, he's obedient. And his obedience is compared to his father David. Now, the problem with Solomon is that by the end of his life, this statement seems out of place. See, if you'll journey ahead in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 11, you read a different statement about Solomon. It's in verse 6 of 1 Kings chapter 11, where we are told that Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Notice here, Solomon gets compared to his father for the second time. But instead of being compared to David and said, hey, he was like his father, this time it's, he's not like his father. This time it's a, it's a negative comparison. It's really more of a contrast. Where David was faithful, now the text is telling us Solomon wasn't. And if you skip back, or if you back up two verses to verse 4 of 1 Kings chapter 11, you find out why. Because in 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 4, we're told that Solomon turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. And the, wait, I just, yeah. And it's uh, because... I'm making sure I didn't skip something here. It's because of these wives and these concubines he allowed in his life. They turned his heart away. This is the reason, and we talked about this uh, a few weeks ago, this is the reason under Mosaic law God prescribed ahead of time that kings should not multiply wives for themselves because he was fully aware that, that wives could easily cause the kings of his people to turn the people away from him and to serve the deities of those wives. And that's exactly what happens with Solomon. And Solomon does some pretty detestable things if you read, uh, read on in these verses in 1 Kings chapter 11. 
the descriptions of what he allowed to happen in service to these other deities, all because he was convinced to make that transition by his wives. And all of these statements that we just read about Solomon are comparing him to David. One comparison that's a positive comparison, hey, you're like your father, and the other two are negative comparisons, hey, you're not like your father. And what happens in the aftermath of Solomon's failure to be like David is that the Lord decides to split the kingdom up. And it's after Solomon, you can read in verse 9 through 13 of 1 Kings chapter 11, it's after Solomon that we're going to have the division. And the reason it's after Solomon is solely because Solomon was David's son. In fact, you can read in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 12, where God, speaking to Solomon, says, For the sake of David your father, I will not do it. I will not split up the kingdom in your days. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. So Solomon got a little benefit just from the fact that he was the direct descendant of David. But during the days of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam was David's grandson, the kingdom does divide. And when we read about Rehoboam, we don't ever read an, an explicit connection to David. The text never really provides a, a overt comparison to David like it did with Solomon. But the summation of Rehoboam's reign is described in 2 Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 1, where we're told that he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. And you can look at verse 14 of that same chapter, and it tells us that he did evil, for he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. So Rehoboam doesn't have one of those statements that, that makes reference to David, but it's obvious he's not like David. But I had to throw Rehoboam up here because he is David's grandson. He's the king when the kingdom divides. And from here, David's descendants only reign over the southern kingdom of Judah. After Rehoboam comes David's great-grandson, Abijam, sometimes called Abijah. And the description of Abijam appears in 1 Kings chapter 15, particularly verse 3, where we're told that he walked in all the sins that his father did before him. Now, that's a reference to Rehoboam. He walked in all the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. There's the comparison to David. There's the contrast with David. From there, we go to David's great-great-grandson, a guy named Asa. And Asa is described in 1 Kings chapter 15 and verse 11 with this description. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as David his father had done. Now this is the first descendant of David to receive only positive reviews. Only the positive parallel to David himself. Asa is, is known as one of the good kings of Judah. And those are in the minority. After Asa, we get David's great-great-grandson. No, great-great-great-great-grandson. His name is Jehoshaphat. In 2 Chronicles chapter 17 and verse 3, we're told that the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. There's another one of those positive comparisons. After Jehoshaphat, there's 15 more kings in Judah. Only two of those kings 
would be fully praised as imitators of God. One will be partially praised as an imitator of David, and one will be contrasted with David. Real quick, first up we have Amaziah. He was the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson of David. And we're told in 2 Kings chapter 14, and verse 3, that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not like David his father. He kind of did it, but not completely. In fact, 2 Chronicles chapter 25 and verse 2 says it this way. It does not mention David, but it says, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not with a whole heart. Now think about that. In one verse, yet not like David. In another verse, yet not with a whole heart. So the, the, what's conveyed right there is that David's obedience to the Lord was wholehearted. Jehoshaphat's half-hearted might be a way to say that. So I'm not Jehoshaphat, I'm sorry, Amaziah half-hearted. Now, let's give Amaziah some credit. At least he's not told he's evil and horrible. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He just didn't do it to the level David did. After Amaziah, you go a, few, a couple more generations, you get to Ahaz. He is the great, 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 great grandson of David. I had fun figuring out how many greats to put in each one of these. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. Now, the vast majority of the kings of Judah, that could be said of, but Ahaz is the only one in this list of 15 after Jehoshaphat that gets that title. Other comparisons get made. Some guys get compared to King Ahab of the northern kingdom of Israel. Others get pay, compared to their, their, their father before them who did evil. But Ahaz goes back, his statement goes back multiple generations to David to make sure that we know that he was not like him. Ahaz's son Hezekiah comes into the picture. And 2 Kings chapter 18 and verse 3 tells us that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. You can see a contrast between that description and the one we had of Amaziah who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord yet not like David his father. But Hezekiah is also known for some reforms. In fact, uh, Craig did a great lesson on uh, Hezekiah a few weeks ago in my absence. And after Hezekiah, we can talk about Josiah, the great, 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 great grandson of David. And Josiah, also known as being one of those reformers, as being one of those good kings that gets lauded in the southern kingdom. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of David his father, according to 2 Kings chapter 22 and verse 2. Now, I know all that information is quite boring, but it's fascinating to me that after David, so many of the kings will be compared back to him. You don't have them saying Josiah was like his great-grandfather Hezekiah. You don't have the Bible saying Hezekiah was not like his father Ahaz. You don't have comparisons just going one generation back. You have that many greats being recalled because David was that outstanding. David was that exemplary. David was that significant that every generation, to to some degree or another, is going to get compared back to him. 
And I want you to think, that's the legacy. What's your legacy going to be like when it comes to your example? Are multiple generations after you going to point back to you and say, that's who you need to be like? Some of you have those men and women in your lives. And you might even be telling your own kids right now, man, your grandfather was the, was the best Christian I ever knew. Your grandmother was the most godly woman I ever knew. It's wonderful to have that kind of heritage, isn't it? It's even better to leave it. So I want to challenge you when you think about this man after God's own heart. Here's a guy who has set such a powerful, godly example that generations after him will be compared to him. That can be daunting. That can be scary. But it can be beautiful too. Are you leaving that kind of legacy? Are you living a life that future generations will reflect back on and say, that's someone who followed the example of Christ, so therefore we can follow his or her example. Because that's what David did with his life. His example was that powerful that people would be compared to him. If we want to be men and women after God's own heart, we should be leaving that kind of an example for our children and our grandchildren and even our great-grandchildren and even our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren. But that's not the only thing that's fascinating about David. The other thing that's interesting when it comes to the legacy of David is that his words proclaim the law. Now, let me explain what I mean. When you journey through Scripture, the greatest source of information that gets, pulled, that gets uh, referenced is Mosaic law. Anytime you come across a statement that, sa that says, as it was said in the law of Moses, or something similar to that, what it's declaring is that this is what was commanded. This is the standard. This is the truth. This is what we build our lives upon. And what's so interesting is that over time, statements that David made, policies that David instituted, plans that David enacted, get held up and revered to that same degree. David, in 1 Chronicles chapter 23, chapter 24, chapter 25, and chapter 26, as an old man, starts organizing things related to the temple. In chapter 23 of 1 Chronicles, David organized the roles of the Levites. Mosaic law had instructions for those Levites as it pertained to the tabernacle in particular. One of their big duties was transporting the tabernacle furniture and the tabernacle structure itself. Well, guess what? Once Solomon builds a temple, there's nothing that's going to be transported. So what do those guys do? Well, David's putting together the plans for what their responsibilities will be. First Chronicles chapter 24, David organizes the role of the priests. He starts discussing which clans will do what in conjunction with what Mosaic Law had already instituted, but he's adding on to that. And then in 1 Chronicles chapter 25, David organized the musicians. Now, Mosaic Law didn't have near as much to say about this as it might about the priest, 
So David is further defining those roles. You can get to 1 Chronicles 26, and he organizes the gatekeepers, the treasurers, and some miscellaneous roles. So for four chapters of 1 Chronicles, we have David as an old man, unable to go to battle, unable to perform some of his previous duties, but he finds where he can still work for the Lord. And that is helping structure, helping organize, helping plan out what the roles of all these individuals are going to be. And it's easy to read those sections of Scripture and conclude that that since these tasks and assignments are spearheaded by David and not specifically spelled out by Moses, then they are not perpetually binding. In other words, it would be easy to say that since these policies are not specifically a part of Mosaic law, then they aren't requirements. But that's not how future generations viewed it. I'm going to run through several passages, and I want you to see how the next generation after David and the generations to come viewed his instructions. Let's start with 2 Chronicles chapter... Oh, I skipped one. This is 2 Chronicles chapter 23, verse 18. We're told that Jehoiada posted watchmen for the house of the Lord under the direction of the Levitical priests and the Levites, whom David had organized to be in charge of the house of the Lord, to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, as it is written in the law of Moses, with rejoicing and with singing according to the order of David. Okay. I have the wrong verse on. There it is. That's the problem. Copy and paste got me. That verse on the screen is actually 2 Chronicles chapter 8, verse 14 and 15. Let me read that one to you. 2 Chronicles chapter 8, verse 14 and 15. According to the ruling of David his father, he appointed the divisions of the priests for their service and the Levites for their offices of praise and ministry before the priests as the duty of each day required. And the gatekeepers in their divisions at each gate For so David, the man of God, had commanded. And they did not turn aside from what the king had commanded, the priests and the Levites, concerning any matter and concerning the treasuries. David provided instructions regarding the priests in 1 Chronicles 24, the the Levitical musicians in 1 Samuel 25, and the gatekeepers in 1 Chronicles chapter 26. And here we are in 2 Chronicles chapter 8, as Solomon is going over the temple requirements and they're looking back on David's organization and referring to it as a command. It's not just a suggestion. It's not just David's advice. It's viewed in command terminology at this point. David's words, David's instructions carried weight. Now let me read 2 Chronicles chapter 23 and verse 18. Again, and Jehoiada posted watchmen for the house of the Lord under the direction of the Levitical priests and the Levites whom David had organized to be in charge of the house of the Lord to offer burnt offerings to the Lord as it is written in the law of Moses with rejoicing and with singing according to the order of David. And this is a reference back to the organization David provides for both the Levites and the priests in 1 Chronicles chapter 23 and 24. And it's worth noting that David's organization is paralleled with what is written in the law of Moses. 
it seems to suggest that at the very least, David's instructions were viewed as a supplement to the law of Moses. That his instructions are, are supplementing what the law said and therefore should be held in the highest esteem and obeyed similarly. Then we can go to 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 25 through 30. This is during the restoration of the temple under the worship, uh, the restoration of the temple worship under the direction of Hezekiah, one of those good kings. And Hezekiah stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres according to the commandment of David. There's that command terminology again. And of Gad the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet, for the commandment was from the Lord through his prophets. The Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. Then Hezekiah commanded that the burnt offerings, that burnt offering be offered on the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song to the Lord began also. And the trumpets, accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel, the whole assembly worshipped and the singers sang and the trumpeters sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. When the offering was finished, the king and all who were present with him bowed themselves and worshipped. And Hezekiah the king and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. And they sang praises with gladness and they bowed down and worshipped. Now, if you paid attention through there, they're, they're using instruments picked out by David. They're using words from songs written by David. And they're doing all this according to the command of David. There is reflection back on what David did as a leader that is held in highest esteem. It's as if they're finding credibility for what they do based on the fact that it came from David. And then 2 Chronicles chapter 35 and verse 4. This is when Josiah oversaw the keeping of the Passover. He instructed the Levites to prepare yourselves according to your father's house by your divisions as prescribed in the writing of David, king of Israel, and the document of Solomon his son. And as this Passover observance unfolded, there are references to them distributing the burnt offerings to the people to be offered to the Lord as it is written in the book of Moses. There's reference to roasting the Passover lamb according to the rule. And there's reference to positioning the singers according to the command of David. And it gives the appearance, at the very least, that in their eyes, in Josiah's eyes, the command of David was of equal standing with what is written in the book of Moses. That they are both that important. And then in Ezra chapter 3 and verse 10, after the exiles who returned to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel from captivity, after they had laid the foundation of the temple, we're told that the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. You can journey back to 1 Chronicles chapter 6 and verse 31, and there you find out that David puts certain individuals in charge of the service of song for the purpose of ministering with song before the tabernacle of the tent of meeting until Solomon built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. In other words, David, um, David had intentionally put people in charge of the praise service when the temple was constructed. 
In 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 4 and 5, we're told that David appointed some of the Levites as ministers to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, and Asaph was the chief among them. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 25, verse 1 and 2, we will learn that David set apart the sons of Asaph to prophesy with lyres, with harps, and with cymbals. All of those passages make reference to the fact that David put some policies in place. David pointed some people to some particular positions, and when they came back from captivity, after that first temple had been destroyed, they came back, they laid the foundation of the next temple, and they looked back and said, how did David do it? How did David order us to worship at this temple? We're going to abide by the prescriptions, the directions of David. And then when Ezra discovered that there were no Levites among the caravan of exiles that he was taking back to Jerusalem, he recruited some for the trip, and among those who joined them were 220 of the temple servants whom David and his officials had set apart to attend to the Levites. There is another reference to those individuals that David appointed to special roles. And even Ezra the scribe, Ezra the priest, is, a, is following the, appoint, the appointments that David instituted years earlier. And when the wall of Jerusalem was being dedicated under the leadership of Nehemiah, groups of Levites gathered on the city walls to form two great choirs. And some of the men that are named among those in those choirs are said to be in possession of the musical instruments of David. Stuff that he created and stuff that he employed were being utilized here. And I know y'all really want me to venture off into a discussion of musical instruments in the Old Testament, but we're not going there. This is about David's life, not about that. And during the day on which that wall was dedicated, men from among the Levites were appointed to oversee certain activities associated with the temple. And you can read in Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 45 and 46, that um, these individuals performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the commands of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And I know that list of verses that we just plowed through are not going to be retained by you tomorrow. But what I wanted you to see is how many times and across how many generations there is an appeal back to the things that David put in place at the end of his life, and how many times these the, the Israelites would return to David as the source of their information for how to do what is pleasing to the Lord. We have it happening with Solomon, his son. We have it happening with his descendants on the throne, guys like Hezekiah and Josiah. We have it happening after the exile in Babylon. In other words, the history of your Old Testament after David is filled with references back to him and back to the th policies he put in place and back to the things he directed and prescribed for worship at the temple. That's how elevated his word became. If the law didn't address it, and David did, it was almost as if the law had addressed it. That's how esteemed his word became. When you think about your own legacy, when you think about how you will be remembered by the generations after you, 
Will they be able to esteem your word? Will they be able to look back on you? You know, one thing that I find fascinating is that if, whenever I leave this earth, my daughters are going to be able to listen to me. There's this database of recordings with my voice communicating messages from God's word. And I've often thought if, if I tragically were to leave tomorrow, before my daughters became Christians, at least I know they can hear me teach them. So I better do it right. Is your word, are you that conscious of the word you communicate, of the message you communicate? David's word became that powerful that people appealed to it for guidance and direction. If you were to be gone tomorrow and the generations after you were able to access your Facebook, what message would they uncover? I heard nothing over here, and I'm like, well, good. (laughs) If you were to be gone tomorrow, and they got your, your future generations after you were able to access your computer, the emails you've sent, the documents you've typed up, the text messages that have gone out over your phone, would they be able to revere your word? We need to be cognizant of the messages we proclaim and the impact they can have on future generations. And how if we, and I think that's why when you get to the book of James, you get to chapter 3 and James is like, not many of you should be teachers. He tells us in James chapter 3 that that those who take on the role of a teacher are going to be held to a higher standard. Because your word is that powerful. I think David passed that standard test. The question is, when it comes to our legacy, will we have passed that test too? Now, I know James was speaking, especially to those who serve in a capacity of teaching God's word. But as parents, as grandparents, as aunts, as uncles, as neighbors, as friends... As brothers and sisters in Christ, you're having influence over future generations that are going to hear you. Whether you're teaching in a Bible class back there, whether you're leading a prayer up here, giving communion remarks up here, leading us in song, or just interacting on a day-to-day basis, there are words you're speaking that are going to have impact on, on, on souls into the future. Are you leaving a legacy with your words like David did? There's one last thing I want to mention in regards to David's legacy. And that is that his life always pointed to Christ. And he may not have even fully known it. When you look back on the Old Testament, particularly looking at Messianic prophecy, you can't escape David. In one of Scripture's most popular messianic prophecies, Isaiah associated the Messiah with David, saying this in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, 
To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. You can see the association with David right there in Isaiah chapter 9. The Messiah is going to be connected with David in this unique capacity. And then Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 14 through 16. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Just so you know, right there is one of the names of God that will appear in a Sunday lesson at some point. But notice again, the connection between the Messiah and David. And we see that unfold when we get to the New Testament. And we come across these genealogies of Jesus. Both genealogies of Jesus, you have one in Matthew chapter 1, you have one in Luke chapter 3. Both genealogies will trace Jesus' genealogy through David. What's interesting is that they do diverge with the son of David. Matthew will trace Jesus' genealogy through David via Solomon. Luke will trace Jesus' genealogy through David through his son Nathan. What's fascinating is you have this divergence after David, but they both have David. It's been argued and continued that maybe the reason there's difference is because Matthew's gospel is following Jesus' genealogy, Jesus' legal genealogy via Joseph. Because the stories related to Jesus' birth are told through the eyes of Joseph in the gospel of Matthew. And for all intents and purposes, Jesus was going to legally be viewed as Joseph's son. Luke's gospel, then, is argued, most likely traces the genealogy of Jesus through Mary. All of the stories related to Jesus' birth and childhood are told through her eyes in the gospel of Luke. And, and it, it's the argument that Luke's gospel was focused on the true biological lineage of Jesus, the blood lineage of Jesus, which would only be traceable through Mary. If that is the case, then God in his infinite wisdom made sure that, David, that Jesus was a descendant of David on both sides of his family. That's how important David was. Because whether we're talking Matthew's, lineage, Matthew's genealogy or Luke's genealogy, David appears. David is held up as this important piece in the lineage, the messianic lineage of the one who would save the world. You can't journey through the Old Testament and conclude that the Messiah wouldn't 
would not be a descendant of David. It was intentional, just like he was intended to be a descendant of Abraham, just like he was intended to come from the tribe of Judah. So David's life is pointing towards the Messiah. David's life is pointing toward Christ. And I find it so very fascinating that frequently David's own words in the Psalms will get quoted, quoted by Christ. None more popular, none more memorable than Psalm 22. It's in Psalm 22, verse 1, David writes these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you recognize those words primarily because they were spoken by Jesus on the cross. And if you read Psalm 22 and you journey through everything that David says, it's fascinating. How in the world could David write these words and they relate so perfectly to the experience of Jesus at the crucifixion? If you look at verse 6 through 8 of Psalm 22, and I do not have this on the PowerPoint, if you were to look at verses 6, 7, and 8 of Psalm 22, you would see it referencing the mocking of Jesus. Or at least you would see the mocking of Jesus referencing Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse 6 says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And if you continue on in that psalm, you get down to verse 14 through 18. It perfectly describes the scene at Calvary. David writes this, starting in Psalm chapter 22, verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. David is writing this a thousand years before Jesus. And yet, it perfectly encapsulates the, the experience of Jesus at Calvary. Because David's life was pointing to Christ. And I think you can tell where I'm going with this. When you consider your own legacy, when you consider what your kids, your grandkids, your great-grandkids, and all future generations can think about you, can they see someone whose life always pointed to Christ? At least, from the, at least from the day that you became his disciple. Does the way in which you go about your life right now, the decisions you make, the attitudes you possess, the thoughts you think, the words you say, the activities you engage in, the behaviors you ex express, does all of it point to Christ? Are you leaving a legacy that when it's all said and done, everybody's going to look at you and know that you were a child of God, a disciple of Jesus Christ, a part of the church family, 
Because a life well lived is a life that's not lived for self, but a life that's lived for Christ. And even though David lived a thousand years before Jesus, his life was still pointing in his direction. Whether it was the messianic prophecies that would flow through him, or even the words that he would pen, they had, a, they had the capacity of pointing towards someone greater. This evening, the, I look at the life of David. I look at the life of a man after God's own heart and wonder, can I live up to that? That's the question I want all of us to consider. Is my legacy one that, that like David, will live on because it wasn't about me, it was about my Lord? I came across this story about the Washington Monument. You know, the Washington Monument is there in the National Mall in D.C. and dedicated to George Washington, our first president. Construction began on it in 1848 and was halted from 1854 to 1877 due to the Civil War and a, a lack of funds, but it was eventually completed in 1885. Back in 1994, it went, underwent some restoration, and during that restoration process, marble wainscoting was removed from its lobby. And behind that wainscoting, they found a meticulously carved declaration of a 19th century graffiti artist. You heard me right. The graffiti said, Whoever is the human instrument under God in the conversion of one soul erects a monument to his own memory more lofty and enduring than this. Whoever is the human instrument under God in the conversion of one soul erects a monument to his own memory more lofty and enduring than this. And the point is that what you do for God is your ultimate legacy. That's why when Paul recounted the history of Israel to the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch in Acts chapter 13, he didn't speak about David's military conquests or David's kingdom in expansion. Instead, he spoke of David's devotion to God. And in Acts chapter 13, verse 22, Paul said, When God had removed Saul... He raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Does God find the same thing in you? You see, David's legacy will forever be that of a man after God's own heart, who sought to do all of the Lord's will that ultimately should be the legacy of every one of us who, puts on the, who, who wears the name of Christ. And so as we bring our study of the life of David to a close tonight, may we be challenged by his legacy. May we seek to be people who provide an example that sets the standard for future generations. May we be a people whose words proclaim the will of the Lord so well that they endure forever. 
May we be a people whose lives are consistently pointing towards the one through whom salvation has come. May our lives not be about us. May our legacy be about our Lord. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we're actually going to wrap up early tonight. Our Heavenly Father, help us to be like the one you called a man after your own heart. We know he wasn't perfect. We've had the opportunity these past several weeks to discover his flaws, to see where he made mistakes, to see where he erred. And Lord, that does give us hope because it reminds us that no one is perfect. And Lord, we know we are not. But Lord, in the life of David, we also discovered someone who knew how to correct themselves when they sinned. We see in someone who had courage in the face of extraordinary opposition. We saw someone who defended the faith, someone who tried to the best of their ability to do things according to your will. We saw in the life of David someone who truly understood how to prioritize you. And Lord, we we look at him and his enduring legacy, knowing that your will for us is to be men and women like him who put you first in all things. And Lord, we recognize that so often we fail to do that. We ask that you forgive us of that. And we ask that you embolden us, moving forward, to live like David, to live worthy of a title man or woman after your own heart. Help us, Lord, to take seriously the opportunity we have to leave a legacy. Help us to make the most of it. And help us to always be pointing toward your Son with everything we do. We love you, Lord, and it is through the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.